0: you want to turn to Romans 5, that's going to be the first passage I'm looking at, so we're moving around a bit. Um, So we've been looking, as Mike said before, looking at inviting God's glory over the last few weeks. Looking at this, because really our mission here, as you know, is to be a habitation of the presence of God. Within the community, and the idea of glory and the idea of presence—they're so interlinked. You can always say they're the same thing, and we want more. We want more of His glory. We want more of His presence. Um, I was listening recently to a talk by a guy called John Tyson, and he's a preacher who's really interested in revival, um, because he was actually saved as a teenager in a revival in, in Australia where he's from, though he now preaches in a church in New York City. And he's so into it, like one summer, his family holiday, he took him around uh, places where revivals had happened historically, including going up to the Hebrides, a famous revival there. And he was looking for, what's the key? What's going on in all these places that brought revival? And uh, there's different explanations some people have, and particularly uh, within certain church traditions, They'll believe it's the things that make, you know, that make up their tradition, that make those things happen. The problem is, the revivals aren't limited to any one church tradition. So that doesn't explain anything. But he's found there is one thing every place had in common. Hunger. Uh, he, he labeled it, he said, the way you can boil it down is this. God comes where He's wanted. And as a society, particularly in Western society these days, we become more and more comfortable just with general life. Generally, you know, there are people with difficulties, but as a general rule, in the Western world, life has never been more easy or comfortable. The way, what technology, how, it, how it's changed things. And so, people are just less hungry. The churches in the world that are seeing the most growth that are seeing the more moves of the Spirit are places where Christianity is outlawed, or if not outlawed, at least persecuted. Mm -hmm. And we have to ask ourselves in the Western Church, what are we hungry for? Are we hungry to see the glory of God? Or are we hungry to have God give us the good life? Are are our prayers about God and what he can do, or just... um, have, is it about having all of God, or is it just about, do you know what, God, I'd like quite like a nice, easy life, um, and if you could help with that, I'll go to church every Sunday. And we laugh, but that, that is so many people in churches in the Western world's kind of view of what God's there for. Anyway, right. I'm reading Romans 5 from verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, as Paul, in his letter, says elsewhere, he doesn't boast in himself or anything he has, but he boasts that in that, the hope of the glory of God. And there's a future element there he's talking about, of what is to come in heaven, of being made perfect, of sharing eternity with God just worshipping him. But it's not just that. Because he goes on from verse 3. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So in this period, On earth, we glory in suffering as well. And it sounds weird, you almost think, am I reading that right, Paul? Is it a mistranslation? But we can glory now and and revel in living the glory of God even as we await what is to come in the future. Because we live in the kingdom here and now, and yet there's that tension that things are not fully realized. And so we struggle and we suffer and we go through seasons that are better than others and some that are worse. But glory is not about every prayer being answered. In Psalm 23, David doesn't pray, thank you that you've rid me of all my enemies. No, he says, you lay a table for me in the place of my enemies. It's not that everything goes perfectly, but that God is with us. His glory is with us, even in suffering. And you might be thinking to that, yeah, right, Paul, you haven't suffered like me. You don't know what you're talking about. Paul risked his life, I don't know how many times for the gospel. If you were looking at it from an earthly point of view, you'd say once too many because he eventually died for the gospel. But as Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If you are in that place of struggling now, I just say let your pain help you to cry out. I sometimes wonder if maybe revival doesn't come here very often because we're too British. We don't cry out to God. We say, okay, I'll keep that inside and just let it kind of bubble under the surface and uh, carry on in my sadness. But I can't say anything. I can't speak out and offend God. Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You think you can pray something that's going to offend God? God knows what's in your heart. Cry it out. I want to encourage you to actually pray bigger. Actually, in, God can use those struggles, as He like says, glory in our, our suffering. And we were talking before about chains being broken. If you're struggling in an area, don't just pray about that. We can get so caught up in our own things. But rather than just pray for me in this situation, you're not the only one struggling in that situation. Pray it for the world. Pray for others who are in that situation. Take your eyes off just me. Take your Put your eyes on God and what he can do in breaking chains in all sorts of areas. If you're struggling with addiction in an area, pray for those with addiction around the world. If you're struggling with loneliness, pray for people struggling with loneliness, whatever it may be. Let your prayers go just beyond your situation to who God is and what he can do around the world. i want to turn to John 17, um, just as you're doing that, I'll just explain the context here. So we're going to see Jesus' prayer where he's in a place of suffering and struggle. Uh, the, this is the night before uh, he's going to be crucified. In fact, quite a few chapters leading up to this, look in John, but up to John 17, are looking at this. Um, And Jesus has just been telling the disciples, you know, of all that's to come, and they're still not understanding yet. And he finishes John 16, because it it goes into John 17, starts after Jesus said this. So what he'd said was, he told the disciples what was to come, and then the final verse of chapter 16 says, I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And in chapter 17, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, I have brought brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And it seems like the wrong moment to be talking about glory. Think of glory as this shining light. You might think, hey, when he walked out the tomb, it doesn't say what happened exactly in the Bible, but you might think this amazing moment, the stone's gone, this massive light, shining light, and out he comes. But this, this is the darkest moment, isn't it? As he said, he cried out on the cross less than 24 hours after that moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is this a moment of glory? Greg Boyd uh, puts it like this. In the New Testament, God's glory is simply the radiance of his character, his other-oriented love. And because God's glory is other-oriented love, God wants to give it away. In fact, giving it away is the point of the whole thing. He wants to share his glory. See, Jesus, in that moment, more than ever, needs that life from the Father, as he said through the Gospels. He can do nothing but what the Father shows him. But he needs God more than ever in that moment to go through that moment of greatest glory. You might think now, after that, after the. Uh, He's resurrected, that he has that resurrected body, can walk through walls. It's pretty glorious then. But even more so is Jesus glorious on the cross. As he said, there is no greater love than a man lay down his life for his friends. That is the moment in the whole Bible where we see God's glory displayed more than any other part on the cross. Later in John 17... Uh, he goes on. Jesus goes on to pray for his disciples, so I'll skip a bit and move on to verse 20. Because It's not just the disciples he prays for. Having prayed for the disciples, in verse 20 he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. In verse 22, Jesus doesn't pray that we might have glory. He says he's already given it. He wants what he wants. wants us then to see that where he's given it. In verse 24, he says, uh, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The fact is, Jesus giving us his glory is already a done deal. But we don't li- always live in that awareness of it. When I read that quote before about Greg Boyd talking about what God's glory is, he started in the New Testament. And you might hear that and think, Was God's glory different in the Old Testament? Isn't God the same? Yesterday, today, and forever, and He is, and His glory is the same thing. But His presentation of it and how His people experienced of it changed. We look back early in this year, like the difference between the Old Covenant in the Old Testament and then the New Covenant in the New Testament. And in the Old Covenant, you often see God's presence as a cloud, uh, leading the people in the wilderness. And then at the tabernacle or the temple, in that holy of holies. And in the Old Testament, it often talks about God being with people. God was with Moses. God was with Abraham, etc. But in the New Testament, it changes. It says, God is in us. I've said that, no many times before in a preaching. In fact, I've said before, I know, that I've said this many times before. I've said it that many times. But it needs repeating again and again because we need to realise what a thing it is that God is in us and that means his glory dwells within us. He said, if you want more on that and the difference in the covenants, we looked at it early in this year, and Tom did a sermon called New Covenant 101 back in February. And when he did that, he said this: The new covenant brings presence. It promises that everyone will know God. We have that presence, we have that glory. We just need the awareness of it. If you want to turn to Second Corinthians 3, it's the last one I'll turn to. So, I know Adrian looked at some verses from this chapter last week, 17 and 18, and uh, Tom looked at them again, I know, in the devotional. But there's always good, more good stuff to be mined. <laughs> so I'm actually going because it leads into it, just to read from verse 7 in 2 Corinthians 3. Paul's writing says, Now if the the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though, though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? What Paul's referring to there is back in Exodus, I think 34, but somewhere around there. Moses goes up to speak with God and gets the uh, Ten Commandments on tablets of stone for the second time because he smashed the first lot. But we won't go into that. We we'll go, won't we'll go, we'll go off on a tangent. So Moses comes down with the tablets of stone, and his face is like glowing with the radiance of having been in God's presence. So much so that like the Israelites couldn't cope to look at him. And so Moses wears a veil across his face. And that's what it, the veil that Paul's referring to there. And he's saying, that was, that was glorious enough that Moses had to cover his face. But now with the Spirit in us, how much glor- more glorious is this going to be? If the ministry, from verse 9, if the ministry that brought, brought condemnation was glorious, how much gl- more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison to the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would pull a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read... A veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul says that we have our faces unveiled We don't want to hide our glory from others. We want to show it to the world. The word that Paul uses there for contemplate in uh, verse 18 is a Greek word, kathetriso. And it means, well, there's a couple of different meanings to it. And that that means we have to consider what does Paul mean here. See, one meaning of it is just to, like, gaze, to stare into a mirror, a bit like Narcissus, and just stare, like, oh, don't I look great? like that kind of thing. And if it's, that's the meaning Paul's getting at, what he's saying is, we just stare like that but at God, just gazing at God, isn't he glorious, isn't he wonderful? The second possible meaning of using that word is like it's talking about you being a mirror and reflecting. So Paul, what Paul could be meaning is, because we have this glory of God, we reflect, we radiate that out to the world. So what do you think? Option A, Hands up for option A, hands down for option B. There's a third option, though. It's both, isn't it? It's one and the other. Paul is getting at both of those things, and most scholars agree on that. He's calling us to just gaze, put our focus on Jesus and his glory, but also then to radiate that out, to share it with the world. Paul's saying, as we gaze on God, it has an impact, it does something. And neuroscience shows we become what we think about. As we look at whatever it might be we look at, it affects our brains, it affects the neurons, the way they fire, the paths they create, until we just start thinking about those things more and more and more, and can sometimes become obsessed about uh, particular things. So what are you thinking about right now? Apart from when is this gonna finish? What are you thinking about? Is it? What's next on the to-do list? It's very easy to me. I'm kind of focused on the sermon. I mean, you get in a zone when you're preaching, but it like, it's like the one time in the week where I'm not thinking about the next lesson to prep or the next bit of marking that needs to be done or whatever. I just find thinking about that a lot and the fact that my car's trying to kill me. <laughs> I, I should probably explain that, shouldn't I? <laughs> Bought a new car recently. Not brand new, but new to me. And it's great in so many ways, and there's just that, that one little minor issue that it wants to kill me. <laughs> so, the first day I was driving it to work, a day after a boss, and I thought, this is nice. And then, just for a second, the steering went really heavy, and it started kind of pulling to the side, and I was like having to fight against it. I thought, oh, this isn't good. OK, just so carried on, but it happened a few more times. So, I looked this up, and you see, I was thinking, there's a fault on this, I'm going to have to take it back. But it turns out it's not a fault. It's something I have called the lane-keeping assist system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And basically, it spends it, the car's always monitoring the road, looking for lines to determine where are the lane. So it's looking, you know, where are the white lines. And it then assists me by helping to stay in the lane I'm in by just steering me constantly towards the middle of the lane if I'm veering a bit too far to the side. And it sounds wonderful in principle, keeping you safe. Don't want to get in a head-on collision. But what if there's a tractor coming the other way? Because I drive to work down country roads, and there's a tractor the other way, and the big wheel's over the white line. I I don't want to be in the middle of the lane. I want to be off to the side, and this so-called safety feature is trying to steer me into an accident. And I don't want my tombstone to say his car drove him into a tractor. So I looked it up online, and I found how to turn it off. There's all sorts of buttons on the steering wheel, so I went through and turned it off, I think that's better now. So the next day, I'm driving to work, and it does it again. I thought, what's going on here? I turned it off, so I go through the menus again. I think maybe I just didn't save it properly or something, so I switched it off, and so then the next day, it does it again. And so after more searching online, I find this is a kind of feature. It helps, you know, the NCAP ratings, where they tell you that how safe your car is, how many stars. This is one of those features that contributes towards that, in it's safety and if they let you just turn it off once and keep it off they don't get as high a safety rating so every time you turn the ignition on it's switched on again even if you stall it partway through a journey it turns itself back on so there is no way for me to turn it off once and for all it's now become part of that you know the checklist you do without thinking about it when you get in the car seat belt on ignition on kill switch off <laughs> Like I said, it's a great thing in principle, keep the car in the lane. The problem is, it's working off limited information. It's only looking at certain things. It thinks, there's a white line, there's the curb, I must stay in the middle of them. What if there's a parked car ahead? Going. I don't look for parked cars, there's the white line, there's the curb, stay in the middle of them, smack. I hope the driverless cars they're working on are more advanced than the lane keeping assist system I've got. I'm not just telling you this because it's just what I'm thinking about at the minute. You've probably all forgotten that segue a few minutes ago anyway. The reason I'm talking about this is the world is full of voices telling us what should be your defining markers of whether you're, where you're staying in lane. One of the biggest things is the world just searching for happiness. That's, that's all life's really about, isn't it? Just trying to be happy. And there's a lot of uh, Christian leaders who... Maybe might be actually given versions of the same thing. Just stay within that. Don't cross that line. don't cross that line. Work hard, earn money so you can buy yourself lots of nice stuff, and you're nice and happy. And that's great for a time until there's the parkour in the middle of the road in the form of some, something you didn't expect, something goes wrong and smack. your worldview can't cope with it, because you're all about happiness. Or it could be about your, the political or social views of the world. There's something called the, the Overton window, you may have heard of. What it means is, in social science, it's like any time in a given uh, country or culture, it's like the view, or, it's the range of views that are acceptable. What is seen as politically acceptable. And it changes from time to time. Well, It's constantly changing. It's different in different countries. So uh, what's acceptable here is very different from what might be acceptable in countries in Asia or Africa or all over the world. It differs and it's massively changed just in my lifetime what's socially acceptable in this country. Um, The biggest example I think is just the area of sexuality and how that's changed from like, you know, sexual morals to sexual do whatever you like. But going back to uh, the theme of problems with technology, I was trying to watch something on Netflix a few weeks ago, and I was doing it on the Chromecast. So I'm pressing the button to go into Netflix, and nothing happens. So you do that thing, you well, maybe you didn't press it again, press it again, pressing it harder, pressing it more. And suddenly, having done nothing for ages, the Chromecast thinks, oh, he's pressed OK seven times. So it suddenly whizzes through lots of menus <laughs> and takes me straight into a TV show I didn't want to watch. Because if you go into Netflix, it doesn't take you straight to what you've watched recently takes you to what it's trying to get you to start watching. It always wants you to watch something new. And my bad luck was that week, the, pro, the new program they were advertising was called Sex Education. And so we, no choice for me, this is suddenly on my TV, and now I'm pressing the backup button over and over again, and nothing's happening as quickly as I'd like it. And so I've seen, like, a few seconds of this show, and it's already it's more than I wanted to see. I didn't see any education, um, other than that, I won't tell you what I saw. But that stuff it has an impact on people's minds. That, that is just seen as a show. It's fine for people to watch. My students are watching that. I've had students tell me, oh, it's a great show, you should watch it. Because it's about a, a bunch of uh, like high school students. I think I've already seen in those few seconds more than is good for me to see in my whole life of that show. That is that having that impact on minds, the neurons, the patterns of the world, and it's just these things. We don't have to deliberately choose them. I did not deliberately put that lane keeping a switch, lane keeping a lane keeping assist on. It was just on every time I switch on the engine. And I'm driving tra- 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 me down the road, saying, "No, go this way, go this way." That's what the world's doing every day. I wake up in the morning, and the world is bombarding me with, "Go this way. This is the way." have to learn to realize we have to switch it off we have to focus on something else as it says and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the lord who is the spirit that's the antidote look at how many times we're told like that contemplate jesus fix your eye fix your minds upon jesus Philippians 2.5, in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Romans 12.2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, <clears throat> pleasing and perfect will. Romans 8.6, the, gov- the mind governed by the flesh is death but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And Philippians 4, 8. I know some in here used to wear on T-shirts many years ago, didn't you? Mm -hmm. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Mm -hmm. It says, what you focus on, what you look at, it affects your brain chemistry, it affects your mind, and you'll want more of that. I saw on uh, a TV this week briefly. I switched on, and it was I switched on the news, and they were showing lots of pictures like Nigel Mansell and different things from his career. And I was worried because before the sound came on, I was worried he died, but it wasn't. It was just an interview with him, and they were looking at his uh, career and some of this memorabilia from his career. And they showed his helmet, and the visor was like just, just this narrow strip like this. And the guys interviewing him, saying, "How can you see out of that? Surely that's wrong." Surely you need it to be big. And he said, no, you want it to be as small as possible while well, at least letting you see what's ahead because you need to be completely focused on that. Any, any bigger and just other stuff that he doesn't need is coming into his peripheral vision that he didn't want to see. And that's what we need to be with our focus on God. It's focusing on the world it makes me hungry for, more hungry for what it offers. Focusing on God... That makes me hungry for him. Makes me hungry for revival. Makes me hungry for his glory. See, glory, it's not just something that we're looking for to have, like better Sunday worship. It's not, we're not, our aim is not that we have wonderful worship services. We want that, but it's not the aim. That's not just what glory is. It's an everyday thing. I remember this from uh, many years ago. It still stuck with me. This was from Mike preaching. And I think he brought a bucket to the front of church, if I remembered it rightly. He may have just been talking about it, but I think I remember he actually had the visual aid. And it stuck with me more than super Christian or even when he dressed as a Power Ranger. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Mike brought this bucket in. And he said, What a lot of Christians will do, they'll come in with this, with an empty bucket to church and say, Okay fill it up. They'll expect God, whoever's preaching at the front, the worship leader, anyone who comes up and gives a word or prophesies, fill up the bucket and i will go out with a bucket full of God and that might last me a week or maybe two weeks if I don't bother coming to church next Sunday. Or, you can be that person or be the kind of person who comes with a bucket that you've filled during the week, that you've spent time focusing on God, that you've spent time... F- contemplating the glory of God, and so you come with a full bucket ready to pour out on others. And that's the kind of people we need to be. If we fix our eyes on him, fix our minds on him, contemplate his glory, we'll see it's not just a special event. It's life in the kingdom, right here, right now. And I can tell you all this, and tell myself this, and we can all go home and decide, I'm going to try really hard this week. This is the week I know I've tried really hard before and it didn't quite work out over time, but this is the week. But willpower's never the answer. It doesn't work over time. The key is to cultivate desire, cultivate a hunger. See, I see it with my students at college. Some of them, they know where they want to go. They've got a vision for where they're going. Uh, particularly see it with those who want to become uh, medics. And they know, I need these high grades, and so most of them, they're, they're just working really hard because they have a vision of this is where I'm going to go. This is what I need to do to get there. And then you have others who are in college because it's what you have to do after you leave school. And they've got no ambition for where they're going to go next. Um, and you've got it's your job to try and motivate them because they're not going to motivate themselves. We need to be a place where we have, we know where we're going.
1: We know, we,
0: know. we saw Paul talking about it before that we can boast in that hope of greater glory but we need to be a place that cultivates a desire for that greater hunger and just one thing to mention on that I believe is really important is fasting it's really important because when you fast you will literally feel physically hungry but it's a reminder that the world can't satisfy me When your stomach rumbles when you fast, it's a reminder. You know, you could just go to the fridge and get something and sort that, but we need to remind ourselves our reliance should be on God, not just what we can do ourselves. And it's not just fasting food. It can be removing other things from your life. Uh, Jim Collins, in his book, book, Good to Great, wrote that good is the enemy of the great. We often think it's the bad stuff. It's actually settling for something that's good that the world offers. Is the enemy of you know what can be the really great things God has in store for us, and I feel a call at this moment as we're talking about glory, and it may just be for me, but I believe it's for others as well, just to remove some things, that, so to make space for the glory of God. Amen. See, Jesus' biggest metaphor for life for us is just to abide in the vine. Here's the vine, here's the vine, where the branches. But it talks about pruning. And that doesn't mean like cutting off people. All right, you're not a Christian, you're out. I'm, getting, I'm cutting you off. It just means getting rid of those things that get in the way. Pruning moves things out of the way so things can grow bigger, so we can bear more fruit. So, I just want to seek after God's glory what we've seen so far it's only a foretaste of what we see to come but as we focus on that I just want to leave you this question what's your picture of God sometimes our picture of God is a distorted image and so we're not seeing that glory when we focus on him as said earlier the the moment of greatest glory in the whole bible is on the cross that love more beautiful than we can imagine. So I know Mike's going to do communion a bit, I don't know how soon, but I just want to invite you today as we do that, and this week, just to spend time focusing on God and his glory on the cross in particular, because there is a revelation there for us of just who God is, just how much he loves you right now. Some of you just struggle with this focusing on God, I feel, because you struggle to feel God's love because of that distorted image you've had from what you've maybe picked up of God or how you've felt about God at different times. Maybe you felt let down by God. As I said before, if you do feel in that place, speak out how you're feeling to God. He can take it. He wants to hear what's on your heart. When you think about God, focus on that image of him on the cross. Cause that tells you just how much He loves you. I'm just going to finish in prayer, yeah. Lord, I, I thank you for that moment on the cross, and, and even so, it seems a strange thing to say how glorious it is. Um, What you changed in that moment, what you did for us. I thank you that because of that, you've come and dwelt within us. Your glory it, it resides in me. It resides in all of us. Anyone who is willing to just to follow you, your glory resides in them. Your presence dwells within us. I thank you for that, Lord. I'm sorry that I, I just take that for granted. And think that, okay, I've got God's glory now carry on with the the worldly path, what the earth says to do. Just help me focus on you more, contemplate you. Make space for you in my life. Cut out things that while good are not great and not you, Lord, to make space for you. Amen.